The following audio is from Potomac Heights Baptist Church, located in Indian Head, Maryland. More information about Potomac Heights Baptist Church is available at www.phbc.com. Potomac Heights Baptist Church exists to glorify God and to make Christ known to the ends of the world by helping one another become more like Jesus. It is our hope that you will prayerfully listen to this sermon audio. Titled this morning's message, Pursue Holiness. Pursue Holiness. J.I. Packer, who has since gone on to be with the Lord, matter of fact, fairly recently he's gone on to be with the Lord, he wrote about his family's beloved grandfather clock in his book, Rediscovering Holiness. He, he wrote that book in 1991, but he tells, how the story, he tells the story of how that grandfather clock, at the time of his writing, was already more than 200 years old. The clock dated back at least as far back as the first, first term of George Washington's presidency. So how would you like to have that for a family heirloom, right? A, a working grandfather clock that dates back to George Washington. Pretty, pretty impressive. In, in his writing, he warmly recall, recalls how that grandfather clock plays a different tune every third hour on the clock. So four different tunes in all. Two of those tunes he and his family recognize because they're still sung today. And the other two he doesn't recognize, and nor has anybody who's ever visited his home recognized those tunes. Those tunes, you might say, have gone the way of all the earth. They've faded from our collective memories. Packer uses that illustration in the book to argue that in many ways, holiness has also faded from our collective imagination. Gone are the days of the Puritans. Even when we speak of the Puritans, we normally speak of them with condescending jokes. And gone are the days of Wesleyan holiness meetings. He writes in his books, he says, Formerly then, holiness was highlighted throughout the Christian church. But how different it is today. Now remember, this book was written in 1991. If anything, the problem has grown more acute, more severe, not less so. And we, and I mean we here as in we Christians, not we Americans and not we general public, but we Christians by and large are no longer concerned with holiness. We're much more apt to encourage one another to be self-fulfilled. We celebrate when individuals pursue their own dreams, even when those dreams often run headlong with what God's Word expressly condemns. We worship at the altar of individual empowerment. We encourage one another to, to be their authentic self. Be who you are. So-called Christian authors peddling books that demonstrate that we've created God in our own image rather than being created in the image of God. But the message of the Bible is still one of holiness. And we are to be holy because He is holy. But beloved, I want you to know that holiness doesn't just happen. You and I, we will never just drift toward holiness. The drift is always, always away from holiness. And this is why we need to pursue holiness. And so I want you to think about that word pursue with me. 
If you're to pursue something, that means you put forth effort. So if you're pursuing a degree in school, that requires effort. If you're pursuing a relationship with a love interest, that requires effort. But pursuit requires more than effort. It also requires direction. If you're pursuing a degree in electrical engineering, for example, you're not going to have time to take too many Shakespeare classes. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Shakespeare. Shakespeare is wonderful, but Shakespeare will not help you in electrical circuitry. You will need direction in your courses so that you can finish your course well. And so when we pursue holiness, we need to be aware that holiness only comes with effort. The the blood, sweat, and tears, if you will, of a Christian life. But holiness also requires direction. Holiness isn't what I defined holiness to be. And holiness isn't what you define holiness to be. And holiness certainly isn't what our culture defines holiness to be. Holiness is only what God has designed it to be. And God has given us His direction in His Word when it comes to holiness. I want to make one more comment about this idea of pursuing holiness before we get into our actual text this morning. Here's that comment. Why? I mean, why bother with pursuing holiness? Why is it important after all? God is, He's already told us that we're saved by grace through faith and not of our works. So our works are not going to save us. So why bother pursuing holiness in the first place? Are, are our efforts toward holiness, are they somehow wasted efforts? Now, if any of those thoughts have ever crossed your mind, I want you to listen to these three verses from the New Testament. It's from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. He says this, the author says this, Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Do you you hear the, the effort implied there, right? And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. And then listen to this verse, verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. And for holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So he tells us to strive for two things. First, we we strive for peace with everyone. Now, I don't know how it is to you, but right now it seems that we live in a social media world of I'm right and you're an awful person. Okay, it's not I'm right and you're wrong, but I'm right and you are an awful person. Beloved, let that not be said of any of us when we're interacting with one another, whether that's through social media or whether that's through a face-to-face conversation. Let that not be said of us. Let us strive for peace. But second, he says, and more related to the overall point of today's message, he says we're to strive for holiness. We strive for holiness. But why do we strive for holiness? The author of Hebrews tells us we strive for holiness Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And so here's here's what that means for us. If you think you're going to see the Lord just because you walked some aisle or because you prayed some prayer or because you got wet when you were 10 years old, 
but your life otherwise hasn't been transformed by the grace of God, then you need to think again. Take note of that warning. Genuine faith will lead to a transformation of life. Genuine faith will lead toward holiness. I'm not talking about being perfect. I'm not talking about never sinning again. But genuine faith will unavoidably lead to a life that's been transformed into a pursuit of holiness. And so with that thought in mind, let's hear from the Word of the Lord. If you're in 1 Samuel chapter 12, say Amen. All right. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 25 verses. Follow along with me, please. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and I have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your, your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand, stand still, that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that He performed for you and for your, and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt, And the Egyptians oppressed them. Then your fathers cried out to the Lord. And the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned. Because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. 
Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil, to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Your Word is good. It's gracious. It's living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Your Word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so I pray, Father, in the time we have remaining this morning that You use Your Word now to mold us and shape us into the men and women that you would have us be. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my central idea for this morning's message is we are to be holy because God is holy. We are to be holy because God is holy. And I have four points I want to make from this for this message. First is I want us to see Samuel's character. Samuel's character. This will be in verses 1 through 5. This entire chapter, by the way, with the exception of three verses, just verse four, verses, verses 4, 18, and 19, the entire chapter is Samuel speaking to the people of Israel. In my, in my Bible, this chapter is labeled as Samuel's Farewell Address. And in these first five verses of the chapter, Samuel is intent on defending his own character. In verse 1, he reminds the people that he had obeyed their voice and their desire to have a king. And now that king is already among them. Now Samuel, for his part, by this point, is old and gray. He's nearing the end of his life. He's lived his whole life before the people of God. And he asks them in verse 3, he says this, Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before His anointed. He asks them five questions. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Now, unfortunately, now, unfortunately, it wasn't too uncommon then, and sadly, it's still all too common today, when well-known leaders will use their positions of privilege to garner for themselves even more privilege. Some leaders may use their positions in our in our modern day their positions of privilege to make sure a certain contract 
goes a certain way, maybe to them or to a close friend. Others leader, other leaders will use their influence to make sure that they or someone they're indebted, indebted to will be appointed to a particularly high position. There's a reason why we say absolute power corrupts absolutely. Wherever, wherever you find strongholds of power, you're, undeniably you're going to find underlying currents of corruption. It's just a matter of a fallen world that we live in. And so Samuel, being somebody who's in a high position, Samuel asked these five questions to clarify his own personal integrity, his own personal character. Twice in verse 3, he invites the people to testify against him. He's giving the people, if you will, an open invitation. He's saying, now's your chance to speak. It's like that line that we rarely hear in, in modern weddings. It used to be a part of, um, of weddings on a regular basis where the officiant would say, if anyone has cause for why this bride and this groom cannot be legally married, speak now or forever hold your peace. Samuel's doing that right now. He's saying, speak now or forever hold your peace. He wants to make his character known. He's saying, testify against me. I, he wants to show himself as somebody who's above reproach. He's nearing the end of his life and he doesn't want his legacy tarnished. He doesn't want someone to come up after he's dead to sully his name. He said, if someone has something against me, he's saying, tell it to me now so that I can defend myself before you. And notice how the people respond in verse 4. They say, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hands. It's a complete vindication of his name. Now, why is that important? Why is Samuel so concerned about his name? He's concerned about his name because Samuel understands that character counts. Character counts. Proverbs 21.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. So if you had the chance to win the Powerball, but having to live your whole life with a horrible reputation, or to live your life paycheck to paycheck, and being a man or a woman of integrity, I hope you would choose the latter. Samuel's working hard to keep his name, his character above reproach because he knows that ultimately his holiness will be a witness to others. You know, we, we, all, we all knew somebody we were in high school. At least I knew people in high school. Let, let's call this person Person X. We knew somebody like Person X in high school who if we heard that a big fight went down over the weekend at the mall and we heard that Person X was right in the middle of the fray, we would have been like, yeah, yeah, that doesn't, you know, doesn't surprise me at all that person X was involved in that fight. It was just that that was that person's character. Now, on the other hand, we also know somebody. Let's call this other person Y. How about those creative names, right? Uh, somebody like person Y. If, if a big fight broke out at the mall and somebody says person Y was in it, you'd say, no way, not a chance. I'm not going to believe that unless you can show me videotaped evidence that that person was involved. In it. I don't believe that. I can't believe that because person Y's character was didn't lead toward that. Here's my point. Let's be person Y. Let's be the type of people who commend the Gospel to those who hear it. Let's be the type of people who others would say, I want to be more like that person. And I'm not saying at all that by our actions alone that somebody's going to come to faith. But I am saying that by our actions alone, we can often turn people away from faith. 
couple of years ago, I don't remember exactly how many years ago it was, um, my wife and I were in D.C. for a Lauren Daigle concert. And I know some of you were at that concert as well. Here, here's one thing that sticks in my memory about that concert. And it actually happened before the concert. My wife and I were out front in front of the venue waiting for the doors to open, and a small group of 20-something-year-olds were walking by, and, and one of the young men, he, he looked up at the marquee, and he saw Lauren Daigle's name there, and he was, got super excited right away. Oh, Lauren Daigle! And he just started chatting to his friends about, about this artist, and he was very excited, very animated about it. And, um, and he got around to telling his friends that she was a Christian artist. And as soon as those words came out, just as soon as he mentioned that she was a Christian artist, one of the young ladies in the group, I mean, went off. Her, her colorful language, we'll just say that, her colorful language made it very clear that she wanted nothing to do with Christianity nor any Christian artist. Well, the, the young man, he, he immediately responded back like, no, no, she, she's different than that. She's different than your, what, what you think of her. She's different. But the young lady, she doubled down. I, she didn't want to have anything to do with Christians. She, she, didn't, she didn't express, she didn't say, well, I have a problem with, her, with this doctrine. This, I was listening to their comments. She, she had had interactions with people who claimed to be Christians. And for all I know, they, they were genuinely Christians, the people she had interactions with. But those interactions turned people off, turned her off, rather. She wanted to have nothing to do with Christianity because of her interactions with Christians. Brothers and sisters, our lives can commend the Gospel or our lives can serve as a repellent for the Gospel. Let's strive for the former. Our character matters. That's point number one. Let's go to point number two. We see God's character here. This is verses 6 through 13. God's character. See, our, our character matters in part because we're followers of Jesus. And our character then will actually say something that's either true or false about God. You know, we're, we're God's children, so our character reflects some way on God. Now, please listen to me, parents. I don't want you to beat yourself up over the illustration that I'm about to use. Um, trust me, I know that our, our children, the children that you have, the children that I have, they are their own persons. Okay, I, I understand that. And sometimes they will act in ways that we think, yes, I'm super, super excited that they're acting that way. And sometimes they'll act in ways that we go, eh, I wish they wouldn't have acted that way, right? I understand that. I have raised four children. I understand that well. But listen, when, when my children go to school, they carry my name with them. And in general, generally speaking, their behavior or their studies at school is either going to say something true or false about the things that I, as their father, value. Okay? You tracking with me? Now, in verses 6 through 13, Samuel is reminding us something of God's character. Now, our character is going to reflect God's character. It's going to either say something that's true or false about God's character. But here, Samuel is reminding the people of something of God's character. And he does that by going to a specific time in their history. He starts at a time in their history when they were in bondage in Egypt. Egypt has been oppressing the people of God. If you're unfamiliar with that, read the Old Testament book of Exodus. You can learn more about that. The people have been in slavery. And so the people are calling out to the Lord for help. And how does the Lord respond when they call out to help? Well, according to verse 8 of chapter 12 here, the Lord responds by sending Moses and Aaron to bring them out of their bondage. Now, Now you might think, and I might think, that those people should be eternally grateful for being delivered out of slavery. I mean, can, can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine being in slavery yourself and somebody delivering you? Imagine, imagine you, you suffered from a drug addiction or imagine you were enslaved to some type of sexual sin or you were in, enslaved to life-crushing, overwhelming debt. Imagine you're enslaved and someone comes by and they free you from your bondage. Imagine you haven't been able to pay a bill on time for months. You're behind on every bill that you owe. Your creditors are getting ready to take your car. They're going to repossess your house. And then along comes this hero. At least she's a hero in your eyes. And she writes one check and all of your financial worries are done. Your house is paid for. Your credit cards have a zero balance on them. Your cars, you, you, you have the note on all your cars. You'd be grateful, wouldn't you? You would remember her generosity. You would sing her praises to your children your grandchildren, right? Well, maybe. Statistically speaking, unless you actually learned how to control your spending, you're going to be back in debt in no time. In no time, you're going to be back in debt. You're going to forget your hero. She's soon going to be a distant memory. Now, why, why do I share that illustration? I share that illustration because that's exactly what happens to the people of Israel. They, they were rescued from bondage. And look at with me in verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God. Now, we might think we wouldn't do that. But we do it all the time. We know what God's Word teaches us to do, but we want to do something different. So conveniently, at least for that moment, we forget the Lord our God. And we put the objects of our desire ahead of our obedience. And we find ourselves in this familiar cycle of sin, repentance, obedience for a time, and then right back into sin again. And so in our text today, the Lord... After, after they forget the Lord their God, it says the Lord sells them into the hand of Sisera, into the hand of the Philistines, into the hand of the king of Moab. These are characters from the book of Judges, which you're, you're welcome to go back and read that. Now, I remember reading through this this week, thinking about it, you know, read 9, verse 9, that they forgot the Lord, and then immediately says, then the Lord sells them into the hands of all these bad people. And I thought, is God being vindictive here? Is, is, is God saying, well, I'll show them. If they, if they forget about me, I'm going to show them. I'm going to get them what they deserve. I'm going to sell them to their enemies. can seem kind of vindictive, right? But beloved, that's not what's happening here. What you understand, that's not what's happening here. The Lord is not being vindictive. He's actually helping His people. He's strengthening His people. But follow with me here. I think all of us know, we, we know what a samurai sword is, right? A ja traditional Japanese samurai sword is. They say that a samurai sword is so sharp and so strong that with one swing of a samurai sword, you can cut a human torso in half. Just with, with a swing. That, that's how powerful it is. But how does it get its strength, the samurai sword? Well, this, this, is, how it, this is how it works. The swordsmith heats up the metal in a furnace. Then he hammers it flat. Then he folds that metal on top of itself, heats it up again, hammers it flat, heats it up again, hammers it, folds it, and repeats this process over and over and over again. 
until the best of the best samurai swords have as many as a million layers of steel. A million layers of steel. Now, that doesn't mean he folds it a million times. Because you fold it once, it's two, and then you fold it again, two goes to four, and then it goes to eight, and then it goes to 16. So it grows exponentially. But still, can you imagine that? A million layers of steel. But it's in that process of heating, hammering, folding. Over and over and over again, it's in that process that the sword gets its strength. And it's because the swordsmith cares about his finished product that he goes through that process over and over and again. Beloved, that's what's happening here in our text. That's exactly what's happening here in our text. It's because God deeply cares about His people that He sells them into the hands of Sisera, into the hands of the Philistines, into the hands of the Moabites. They're being heated and hammered and folded again. And heated and hammered and folded again. Maybe, just maybe, you feel like you're in the midst of being heated and hammered and folded. And you're wondering, is this ever going to end? Let me tell you when that's going to end in your life, beloved, and when it's going to end in my life. It'll end when the Lord is through with you. Okay? When you and I, when we perfectly reflect the nature and the character of our Lord Jesus, that's when it's going to end. In the meantime, this character-shaping effect of fire, of being heated and hammered, and folded over and over again. It's not because the Lord is angry with you. He's putting you through the fire because He's busy shaping you and shaping me into the man or woman that He wants us to be. For the Israelites, their trials by fire to Sisera, to the Philistines, to the Moabites, their trials by fire lead them to a point where they call on the Lord again. Do you see that in verse 10? They call on the Lord again. And how does the Lord respond? Now remember, they've previously been disobedient. But notice how, how, how does the Lord respond? Does He say to him, Yeah, 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 you've done this before. You know, you got in trouble. You're calling on me. I'm not going to help you this time. Is that how He responds? It isn't. In verse 11, the Lord sends Jerubbabel and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel. And what do they do? They deliver God's people yet again. Why does God do that? He does it because He cares about His people. He does that because that's what His character demands of Him. God is always true to Himself. He never does anything out of His character. Even when the people say in verse 12, no, but a king shall rule of us, rule over us. Even when they go so far as say, we don't want God to be our king. We want a king. He loves them still. Why? Because that's who he is. It's his character. It's point number two. Point number three. We see Israel's character. So verses 14 through 19. In verse 14, Samuel offers the people of God a conditional promise. One of those if promises. If you do this, then this will happen. He says in verse 4, If you will fear the Lord your God, serve Him, and obey His voice, and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. If you do those things, it's going to be well. 
Now, what's the purpose of a conditional promise like that? Why, why, does, he, why does he offer the if? Ultimately, he offers the if condition to him to show God's people that they're not capable. They're not capable of fearing the Lord and serving Him and obeying Him and not rebelling against the commandment. They're simply not capable of it, beloved. They are not capable of doing it on their own. They aren't. Beloved, we could, we could take an egg timer to measure the amount of time that it will take them to fail the Lord. We're in chapter 12 right now. Do you know when, they, when, they, when they're going to fail the Lord? Chapter 13. All right. If you were sitting down reading this just in the afternoon, you could do it with an egg timer. You could find how long it takes them before they disobey the Lord. Less than a chapter. But before we pick up stones and throw stones at this ancient people of God, let's remember that we don't do any better. We're not capable of keeping the Lord's commandments. They weren't, neither are we. This, and this is where the gospel comes. This is where the Old Testament is preaching the gospel. Before there was a gospel, the Old Testament is preaching the gospel. You see, the Old Testament, contrary to what some believe, the Old Testament doesn't teach us that we're saved by keeping the law. It does just the opposite. The Old Testament shows us that we're incapable of keeping the law. The Old Testament teaches us the importance of faith. And this is not to deny the importance of holiness. It's not saying holiness doesn't matter. It does matter. It profoundly matters. But our holiness isn't what saves us. Our holiness of life is only a sign that we've already been changed by the grace of God. Our holiness doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. The ancient people of God weren't any better equipped to keep the law than we are. They failed spectacularly in keeping the law. And so the Lord kept refining them over and over and over again. They were heated, hammered, and folded over and over again. And when you and I, when listen, when we fail to keep the law, guess, or when we fail to obey God and to do what God wants of us, when our life isn't as holy as God would have it be, guess what happens? We're heated, we're hammered, and we're folded over again. And all of that refining, all of that refining works to the point that we get to when we say, listen, I am not, when we finally get outside of ourselves and we say, I can't do this. I can't do this on my own. And that's when we recognize that Jesus has already accomplished everything that matters. Jesus lived the life that we were incapable of living. He paid the penalty that we owed and He died in our place. That's why Samuel offers this conditional promise, this if. He's saying, if you do this, then everything's going to be fine. But he knows good and well that the people are incapable of holding up their end of the bargain. Their character won't allow it. Neither will ours. Sometimes the best way to understand the quality of something is by comparing it to something similar. So you and I, we might go down to Walmart this afternoon and buy a bicycle that cost $150 off their rack. Ride the bike around a little bit. We'll shift gears with it. Lift it up. Put it in our back, back of our vehicle. And we think, okay, it's a, it's a nice bike. And as far as $150 goes, it might be a very nice bike for $150. But then we might go 
down to a specialty bike store and ride around on a bike that costs $1,500. We'll go through the same motions. We'll shift gears in it and we'll ride it around a bit and we'll lift it up with much greater ease, lift it up, put it in the back of our vehicle. And it's only then that we're going to recognize that the $1,500 bike is better in every respect than the $150 bike. And here's, here's what I mean. If we were unaware in our mind that there was such a thing as this $1,500 bike, we would have been perfectly happy with our $150 bike. That was, that was, that was, that was our only standard was the $150. We said, yeah, this bike is fine. This bike is perfect. But it's when we're introduced to something that has a greater quality, then we go, oh, we can compare, we can contrast. You go, oh, well, no, no, this one is much better. Well, that's what Samuel is doing in verses 16 through 19. In verse 16, Samuel tells the people, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he says basically stand back because I'm about to show you how great the Lord really is and how wicked you guys really are. Okay, that's, that's what he's doing. He's about to compare and contrast. And the way he does that is Samuel calls on the Lord to send thunder and rain. And the Lord answers on the spot. Now, I, I don't know if you're aware of this. I, I think most of us probably are aware of this. But neither, neither you nor I nor this ancient people of God, we are not capable... Like, we couldn't go out there in the parking lot right now and say, rain. And it, we can't do that. Not on our own. Now, we could call on the Lord to do that, but we can't do that. And so what he's doing is by, by doing that and the Lord answering, it shows the people this categorical difference between the character of the Israelites and the character of God. There's this categorical difference between us and God. Far greater than the difference between a $150 bike and a $1,500 bike. The thunder and the rain, they come, and the people, we're told, greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And the people in verse 19, they asked Samuel to pray for the Lord so they won't die because they've asked for themselves a king. This is displaying Israel's character. That's point number three. Point number four. Final point is our character. Verses 20 through 25. I I don't know how it is with you. Here's what often happens with me. I find myself sinning in ways that I've sinned before. You know, maybe for you, every sin is like a a fresh, like, oh, I've never done that before. Uh, For me, I find myself sinning in predictable ways before. The, The exact nature of a sin is not really important. What I'm trying to communicate is that I already know that something is a sin because I've been down that road. I've been down that road. I've sinned. I've repented of that sin. But here I am again. You know, what gifts? You know, maybe it's just a few days later. Maybe it's a few months later. But here I am again. feels like a song. And I'm freshly reminded that I'm a sinner. And I begin to wonder, am I ever going to win this struggle? I begin to doubt myself. I get very critical of myself. I get very critical, overly critical, probably sinfully critical of myself. And so what Samuel says in these verses really spoke home to me. Follow with me what he says in verses 20 through 25. The people, the people of God, they, they've, they've just repented. In verse 19, they've just repented. They've recognized the wrong they've done and even asking for a king. Then notice these words from Samuel, how Samuel responds to their repentance. He says in verse 20, the first half of verse 20, he says, do not be afraid. 
you have done all this evil. (laughs) He doesn't sugarcoat it for him, does he? You know, he doesn't say, well, you know, it's really not that bad. <laughs> he says, no, yeah, you've done it. It's, you, you really have. You, you've done it. You're guilty of this. But he tells them, notice this, don't be afraid. Now, at this point in his speech, we're going to see it in just a moment, but at this point in his speech, the people don't understand why they don't need to be afraid. But the reason they don't need to be afraid is because of the character of God, of who God is. They don't need to be afraid. And so he continues in the latter half of verse 20. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Again, I don't know what it is for you, but sometimes right after we sin, we, you know, we, we realize that we've failed the Lord in a significant way, and we begin to question, you know, am I even cut out to follow Him? We might even wonder if we're even capable of following Him. Let me, let me illustrate it this way, if, if that doesn't ring, ring a bell for you. You know, if you've ever been on a diet, for example, you know, you're doing pretty good on your diet. You, you, you've lost a few pounds. You're very excited. And then you have these two weeks that just didn't go well, right? Two weeks. I mean, you gain weight two weeks in a row. Instead of then saying, well, you know what? I'm going to resolve this. I'm going to resolve this next. I'm going to do better this next week. Instead, of just, I, I just give up. You just, I'm not, I'm not even going to try anymore. Maybe, maybe you've sinned in such a spectacular way that you feel like giving up. Instead of calling on the Lord for strength, you just want to throw the towel in and just say, I'm going to, just, I'm going to give myself to this sin. Samuel says, no. Don't do that. He says, don't turn aside from following the Lord. Remember, the people had just sinned. They just recognized their sin. They could be at a point where they're saying, you know, we've... We've wanted this king. We've begged for this king, even though you told us we didn't need this king. And Samuel says, don't give up. Don't turn aside from following the Lord. Beloved, hear me well. Our Christian life isn't measured on perfection. Our Christian life should be measured on progress. Are we more like Jesus today than we were a year ago? And so maybe a year ago, for example, you noticed that you were prone to gossip. Now you tried to convince yourself that it really wasn't gossip. I mean, you're just really concerned about this person. And so you talk to everybody except that person about your concerns. That's called gossip. All right. If your concern leads you to talk to everybody except the person you're concerned about, you're gossiping. Now, by God's grace, the Lord convicted you of that a year ago. So how are you doing today? Are you still prone to gossip? Or are you, are you making progress? I'm not saying you, maybe, I'm not asking you do, you, do you ever gossip, but are you making progress in that area? Either way, by the way, whether you had made any progress or whether you have made either way, Samuel's saying, don't turn aside from following the Lord. Because the Lord is the only one who has the resources that we're going to need to free our lives from this type of bondage. We can't do it on our own. But all too often we turn aside from following the Lord. We turn aside and we turn to something that Samuel calls here empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they're empty. We might turn aside to a self-help book or to a support group. And beloved, those things can be helpful to a certain degree. But they can't deliver us. Only God can deliver us. So Samuel tells us, 
in verse 22, he says, The Lord will not forsake His people. But what comes next? This is, if you haven't heard anything else I've said this morning, this is so important that we understand this. Why, why won't the Lord forsake His people? Pay careful attention to this. Is He not going to forsake His people because, hey, you know, look at me. I, look, I'm that important. That, that's not why He's going to forsake His, not he, why He's not, not going to forsake His people. Rather, He's not going to forsake His people. And notice this, underline it if you must in your Bibles, for His great name's sake. That's why He's not going to forsake His people. This is so important. The reason the Lord isn't going to forsake His people isn't rooted in something that changes. You know, if I thought, well, the Lord's not going to forsake me because of who I am, then what's going to happen in two or three generations when I'm not here anymore? Will the Lord forsake that generation? I mean, we could ask that of our text this morning. This was written 3,000 years ago. And the Lord says He's not going to forsake that generation. Well, does that mean, well, does that mean He might forsake us? Times have changed. Maybe the Lord's going to forsake us. But no, 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 beloved. That's not what is happening here. The reason He didn't forsake them wasn't rooted in who they were. The reason He didn't forsake them was rooted in who He is. And He never changes. He's still the same God today as He was 3,000 years ago. And so He didn't forsake them because of His great name. And His name hasn't changed and He won't forsake us because of His great name. Praise God for that. That we know that we can rest secure in knowing that God is not going to forsake us because He's the same God today as He was 3,000 years ago. Samuel closes this chapter by reminding his people of his prayers for them. He reminds them that his teaching is going to lead them in the good and the right way. So he, tell, he tells them in verse 22, by extension, he's telling us as well, only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with your heart. So this, whole, this idea of holiness, fear the Lord, serve Him. And, and, and in doing that, we're to, we're to consider, we're to remember all of the great things that God has done for us as we serve Him faithfully. But notice this, verse 25. Samuel ends with this warning. The Hebrew um, of this verse is actually quite interesting. There's a verb, a Hebrew verb, to, that means to do evil. And it's repeated twice. And it's, so we might literally, you know, verse 25 reads, but if you still do wickedly. Literally, we might read that um, if to do evil, you do evil. I mean, it's repeated there twice in a row. I like the way different translations get at this verse. Um, there's a ancient translation. It's called the Young's Literal Translation. It says, if, if ye really do evil. I mean, like, I mean, it's like not just basic evil, but I mean, you really, you're getting into it. Serious evil. The NIV, for those of you who read from the NIV, if you persist in doing evil. The New Living Translation, the Christian Standard Bible, they say roughly the same thing. If you continue in sin or if you continue in evil. The point here, what, what Samuel's getting at in this final verse, is he's talking about continual, unrepentant sin. And I want you to see how this ties back to what I said at the beginning. That without holiness, we will not see the Lord. It's not because our holiness saves us. Again, Jesus saves us. But if we're genuinely saved... Holiness will follow. Not perfection. 
Not sinlessness, but holiness nevertheless. And so Samuel says, if you continue to act wickedly, you're going to be swept away. Because a life marked by continual wickedness, by continual sinfulness, that's a life that demonstrates it's never been changed by the grace of God to start with. And so let me ask this question to you as we close. Is your life characterized by a holiness that comes not from your own strength, but from the Lord? Have you surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ? And if you haven't, would you do that today? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You for Your grace and Your kindness to us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, I pray, Father, that no one would leave today thinking that because they occasionally do good things, that they're set. That, that they're okay with You. Because our holiness doesn't save us. We're only saved by grace through faith. But if we've genuinely responded by faith, Your Word promises that our lives will be transformed toward holiness. Not toward perfection. Not toward sinlessness. But toward holiness. Toward a pursuit of holiness. And so help our lives be measured in that respect. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear this benediction from from 1 Peter in the New Testament. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he as he who is but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout your time of exile. That'd be our time on earth, okay? Knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. May the Lord bless you and keep you and have a wonderful, wonderful Sunday afternoon. Look forward to seeing you next week. God bless. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon audio from Potomac Heights Baptist Church. Please feel free to make copies of this audio to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission from Potomac Heights Baptist Church.